Welcome to Running Me Radio and happy holidays. This is Joanna Barron. Um, today I'm speaking with Paul Beaudry. Paul is Director of Development at the University of Calgary School of Public Policy um, and he previously practiced competition law at two major law firms in Ottawa and Montreal. Uh, and he was also a senior policy advisor to the Federal Minister of Industry. Paul regularly writes about legal and policy issues with a particular interest in telecommunications law. And I wanted to speak to Paul about the U.S. Federal Communications Commission's recent decision to repeal so-called net neutrality regulations because he's one of the most sound-minded, bright, and thoughtful commentators on this topic. And he actually has an understanding, which I lack of some of the underlying technical details, and I think he explains them clearly in this interview. So we speak about Paul's recent Financial Post op-ed reacting to the net neutrality repeal before talking about the state of Canadian telecom regulations as well as Europe's. Um, Wishing everybody a very happy holiday season. We are gearing up here for our National Running Needs Society Conference the second weekend of January of 2018 uh, at Hart House in Toronto. And we would love for you all to join. So please visit runningmeadssociety.ca if you're interested in learning more and registering for our conference. Enjoy my chat with Paul Beaudry. Okay, so welcome Paul Beaudry and thank you for coming on Running Mead Radio. Um, And you are a sort of unusual case. You are a Montreal lawyer, a Quebecois who is based in Calgary. So you just talk for a minute about sort of your career um, and particularly how you became so interested in telecom law of all things. Sure. Uh, Well, thanks for having me, Joanna. Uh, My interest in telecom policy spans approximately 10 years now. Um, So when I was fresh out of law school in the summer of 2006, um, the conservative government essentially came into power. And uh, at the time, I was uh, pretty close to then industry minister Maxim Bernier, and he invited me to join his office as a Um, senior policy advisor. Uh, And one of the main issues that he had identified as worthy of looking into from a policy perspective when he arrived in industry Canada, which is now ICED, uh, was the issue of telecom policy. We arrived at a pretty good time um, shortly after a uh, blue ribbon panel that had been struck by the previous government to look at telecom policy and what changes should be made uh, to the regulatory framework had issued its final report. So sometimes when you're in government, you arrive at a good time when uh, (laughs) the opportunities are there to make some changes to uh, regulatory frameworks. And and we had that opportunity. And uh, most of my time at Industry Canada was spent initially getting to understand how the telecom regulatory framework operated and uh, also identifying opportunities for reform. Um, As you probably know, telecom is a it's a relatively complicated industry. Uh, There's not a ton of players in that industry, and it's an industry that's gone from being a natural monopoly to a a more competitive landscape over the last two decades. Uh, So there's always a bit of a challenge when you look at regulation for sectors that are concentrated like telecom and, and that used to be monopolies, and that is how do you transition from a monopoly to a competitive marketplace and what kind of regulations are needed in order to bring about uh, more competition in the market. So, so these are all the issues that I was called upon to look at when I was 
at Industry Canada. Uh, thereafter, for about six, seven years, I practiced law um, uh, at, at a major law firm, at, actually at two major law firms. And uh, I specialize in competition law, which was uh, quite an interesting area of the law to, to work in. Again, uh, the reason I was interested in competition law uh, spanned from my experience in government because uh, as telecom was a relatively concentrated sector, I interacted quite often with officials from the competition bureau. So, so I got interested in competition law. So I practiced for six, seven years and uh, wanted to do something else than law practice. So I ended up in Calgary at the School of Public Policy where I'm in charge of development here, but I also do some policy work. And uh, throughout the last decade uh, since I left government, I've remained quite involved in the telecom policy world and uh, published quite regularly op-eds and um, policy studies about the state of competition in Canada's telecom market, as well as on specific issues that arise uh, as applies to broadband policy or telecom policy more specifically. Okay, great. And I do want to come back to the question of uh, the telecom industry in Canada and whether it has become more competitive or whether it is competitive and what's going on with it. But let's jump into your forthcoming, which will be published by the time this podcast is released, uh, op-ed in the Financial Post uh, that is responding to the recent fracas in the United States and really across the world over Ajit Pai's announcement that he will be seeking to repeal, quote-unquote, net neutrality. Um, and so what's what's your take on the very polarized debate that has sprung up? Yeah, well, well, based on what we've heard uh, emanating from the United States over the past couple of weeks, you would think that the sky is falling and there's been uh, uh, hysteria of epic proportions that we've heard from a variety of advocacy groups. Um, I'm in the camp of people who think that it's not the end of the world. Uh, I'm, I'm optimistic, and I think that the reforms that are being pushed by Chairman Pai are well-reasoned and compelling. And, and one of the reasons why I don't buy this whole end-of-the-world catastrophic apocalyptic scenario is that uh, the history of the Internet in the United States is a, an amazing success story. Uh, there's been, tr you know, there's been more than a trillion dollars of investments in broadband infrastructure since the inception of the internet in the U.S., and that's been done over about a period of 20 years, where for the vast majority of the time, uh, the internet has operated uh, as a very light touch regulatory regime on the part of the FCC. And what happened was, at the end of 2014. Um, the Obama FCC was con considering uh, regulating the internet in one way or another, but essentially there there was really nobody who was considering implementing public utility type regulations on the internet. Uh, but after uh, the Democrats, by which you mean uh, just treating internet like a utility, like oil, gas, water. Yeah, well, essentially, uh, what we have in the United States, the current framework, which is kind of commonly referred to as Title II. Uh, treats the internet like a 1930s era telecom monopoly. Uh, you know, th these are rules that were made in 1934 by FDR to regulate Ma Bell. Um, so essentially, uh, uh, the Title II regulation was kind of pushed by President Obama on his then chairman, Tom Wheeler, who, who essentially uh, accepted to, to do what the president wanted. But, uh, you know, just, just uh, prima facie, uh, it is a bit weird to have uh, a regulatory framework that was conceived for 1930s era's telephone monopolies applying to 
an innovative technology such as broadband. And the arguments that are made by the su supporters of Chairman Pai is that it, it, it appears to be, this framework appears to be a solution in search of a problem. There was no big issues of discrimination or blocking or, 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 or things of the, the sort happening before Title II passed. Um, and essentially, the the negatives associated with Title II, the regulatory uncertainty, the, the fears of additional regulation of the Internet, uh, appear to me as, as outweighing uh, any types of benefits that could arise from such a framework. But the argument is that sort of smaller players, in particularly in content delivery, so if a smaller player who, ha who would add creativity and innovation to the digital landscape wants to enter, um, wants to enter the internet and reach consumers, they're going to be disadvantaged by the fact that these massive content providers like Netflix and Facebook can afford to pay for fast lane prioritization. And I think that's one of the, the regula regulation against paid prioritization is one of the things that's proposed to be struck down by Chairman Pai. Um, and so the suggestion is that smaller sort of grassroots entities are going to be shut out just because they won't be able to pay to play. Uh, I mean, you're making a fair point, but it's also very interesting to, 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 to see you mention how the bigger content providers have a leg up. As, as opposed to the smaller ones, and, and you're absolutely right. And the reality is that with or without Title II, uh, these big players already have advantages that smaller content providers do not have. For instance, you look at Netflix. Netflix has servers within the facilities of ISPs to ensure that their content gets delivered in a more efficient way. Google has massive private networks to ensure that their you know, when you do your search on Google, it'll it'll happen milliseconds faster than if they didn't. So, so you know, these bigger content providers already have innate advantages vis-a-vis -vis smaller ones. Uh, but, but ironically, the fight uh, with respect to Title II has often pitted, uh, or or seen as pitting, uh, internet service providers. So, in the U.S., that would be Comcast, Verizon, uh, AT and T. Uh, against the big content providers like Facebook and Google, who who fear that uh, the ISPs might uh, give themselves undue preferences or charge them, but but the reality is that nowadays, and and I think that a lot of you know let's let's stop pitting this debate as being the ISPs against the the, the small individual. Uh, you know the debate has been a, a battle of behemoths where you have the big ISPs versus the big content providers who've been pushing for these types of net neutrality protections. And, and I believe that uh, first of all, it, it's very ironic that, for instance, the big content providers would 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 tell the ISPs if we don't have these rigid regulatory frameworks in place. We fear that there will be harms for, for, for instance, freedom of expression. Well, you know, I, I, as a consumer, I don't really fear that in Canada, Bell, Telus, or Rogers will limit my freedom of expression. If anything, these platforms are much more dangerous in that regard when it comes to selecting content and blocking what they don't like. So, so you know, in a way, I think that it's a bit of a false debate. And, and, and ultimately, the reality is... None of the ISPs disagree with the basic tenets of net neutrality. Nobody wants to throttle. Nobody wants to block. 
And that's not because of a regulatory framework that's in place. It's because they know they will be sanctioned by their consumers and customers if this happens and people will switch. So, so I'm not really fearing this dystopian scenario where we will get back to a scenario, a regulatory framework that operated successfully for 20 years and will have massive abuses and it'll be the far west. I, I just don't buy into that. Well, yes, and you mentioned, um, and it is interesting that the sort of big companies like Facebook, Google, Amazon, although not Apple, which is interesting, um, have publicly come out in a big way in support of net neutrality. But it seems to be more virtue signaling because, as you mentioned, they all have their own their own arrangements with ISPs just because of the amount of just the the massive traffic that they generate. Um, but what, how does it change your calculus when things happen like the proposed and, uh, and resisted AT&T Time Warner merger, where you could see where, um, where there would be this sort of ex-ante streamlining of content so that um, AT&T would put to the forefront Time Warner content and con- consumer, because let's be honest, we're not that sophisticated and we only have two eyes and you know and 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 an ape's brain um so we wouldn't even get to the point where we would demand other content and it would just be a sort of ex-ante decision made for us as it were um i think that people forget that there are antitrust rules still on the book and uh, you know there are rules in the sherman act in the united states that prevent an entity that is vertically integrated from favoring its own content uh, uh, as opposed to content of a third party. So, so these rules would remain. And, and needless to say, uh, antitrust rules also allow regulators to block mergers that they feel would be anti-competitive. Uh, and, and that's one of the interesting features of coming back to transitioning back from Title II to Title I. Uh, and, and for your for, your, for, for, for our listeners who are not as familiar with Title II is the current framework that was introduced under the Obama administration, whereas Title I was the information service classification of the Internet, which was essentially consecrated the, the light-touch regulatory regime. Well, if we go back to that, the FTC, which is uh, one of the antitrust regulatory bodies in the United States, will be, in a, you know, will be empowered to uh, uh, investigate and sanction practices that are unfair, uh, that, that are not transparent. So, so it's not like we're going from regulation to no regulation. We're, we're going from, uh, you know, we're, you were using the term ex-ante, but I think that's interesting here. Uh, in a way, Title II is ex-ante regulation. It's, it's a mother-may-I type of regulatory system where you need to get the blessing of the regulator to do anything. And I think we, we've seen this in the United States. Uh, one of the, the, the pieces of data that Chairman Pai likes to bandy around is that since the implementation of Title II, uh, investment in broadband in the United States have gone down uh, has gone down 5.6 percent, and I think it's the first time there's been such a um, a, a diminution of, of investments in a non-recessionary period, and that's because there's uncertainty. Uh, and, and one of the uncertainty aspects is that Title II. Although it, it's not currently enforced in that way, but it does allow the FCC to regulate prices. And a lot of market actors are not sure. Is this going to happen down the road? Uh, with Title II, you never know. You could have an activist administration that decides, hey, we want to regulate prices. And obviously, this would have significant consequences on the market and on incentives to invest. And, and one thing we need to remember as well is that these broadband networks, I mean, these are not cheap to build. You know, building fiber to go to every home, it, it's billions of dollars in investments. And if you don't have the right incentives in place, you won't have as many investments in that area. And we're not talking 
everything or nothing. But uh, at the margin, there are impacts when you impose regulations that have some costs on providers. Um, so, so I think we need to be very careful. Um, you know, and, and as somebody who tends to believe that the free market generally delivers the goods, and sometimes regulatory intervention is needed, but it, it needs to be done in an ex-post fashion with the regulators that looks at what's happening in the market. And if there are practices that are unfair, have a targeted intervention rather than implementing vast raging regulatory frameworks that essentially limit people's ability to innovate from the get-go. Okay, well, so that's a good place to pivot to talking about Canada. So what is the landscape like in Canada? And uh, your, your comment made me think of this because I recently moved into a new condo building in Toronto, which is wired up with fiber optic cables. And I tried to set up internet with one of the smaller competitors, Tech Savvy, and they said, uh, actually, we can't use those fiber optic tape cables, only Rogers and Bell can. And on the one hand, it's kind of annoying, but on the other hand, um, you need these big companies who can invest and who can get things going and wired up um, at the rate that the greater Toronto area is, is growing really fast. And if you tell them wire up all these buildings, but then tech savvy can come and, and discount the internet services, they won't necessarily have the incentives to do it. You're absolutely right. And I think that when you look at Canada, Canada is kind of in the middle of the road when you compare the United States, which has really adopted a very light-touch regulatory approach historically, and Europe, which has um, been extremely interventionist uh, in the broadband market. Um, and the European story is actually quite an interesting one. Um, over the last two decades, Europe has, uh, you know, when we talk about broadband competition, there's generally two models that are referred to. There's the facilities-based competition model, where essentially you have a regulatory framework, the aim of which is to encourage players to deploy their own networks and to compete against one another. And there's the, the service competition model or the retail competition model where the regulator puts in place a vast array of regulations that allow smaller players to piggyback on the networks of bigger players. Essentially, they resell the service, typically at an attractive rate. And, and that's what Europe has been doing aggressively over the last two decades. And, and they finally started realizing that this is not the right way to go. The European regulators have, have recognized that uh, there's been uh, a, a drought of investments in the broadband market in many European countries as a result of these regulations. Canada has generally been very good on broadband. We have one of the best broadband systems in the world, uh, quality networks, very good networks. Uh, but we do have some regulations that are on the books to help smaller players access uh, the networks of bigger players. And, and there's been a CRTC decision relatively recently in 2015 that I think could have some negative consequences on the market. And that is uh, the CRTC mandated uh, the bigger players who are currently in the process of deploying uh, next generation fiber networks to share those networks with smaller players at, at regulated rates uh, when the networks would be built out. And that's quite interesting because unlike other networks, unlike the legacy networks of the bigger players, where, you know, some people could say, well, the, the, the legacy networks were built thanks to monopoly rents, and therefore I could see the virtue of having the, having the providers share those networks with smaller players, but the fiber networks were built out very recently and are still in the process of being built. And uh, I'm afraid that this decision of the CRTC will essentially 
This incentivizes deployment of fiber, not necessarily in the big cities. I mean, there's still going to be significant incentives for Bell, Rogers, Telus to build in Toronto, Montreal, and Vancouver. That being said, the case might be a bit more, a bit less compelling when it comes to rural and remote communities where, again, the cost of deploying fiber is, is humongous. And if the moment your network is finished, you have a sharing obligation at regulated rates, it becomes less interesting. So, so my general approach has, has been on this. Facilities-based competition is the right way to go. And historically in Canada, despite a few regulatory interventions aimed at stimulating the retail market, we've still been pretty good at uh, encouraging or, or having the right um, incentives in place to favor the deployment of, of next-generation networks. Uh, I'm afraid of this recent CRTC trend of, of, of aiming to allow smaller players access kind of the last generation of, of expensive fiber networks, and we'll have to see what are the consequences of this. But, but there will be, again, because um, providers react to incentives. And, and, and regarding the bigger point about how Canada stands vis-a-vis -vis other um, other jurisdictions, you know, historically, it's 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 a favorite sport of Canadians and, and and many other countries to not like their telecom providers. And everybody has a horror story involving their provider, uh, you know, waiting an hour with their customer service to clear out an issue on their bill, um, uh, crazy additional costs that were charged incorrectly. And I I have my own stories in that regard as well. But when you look at pricing in Canada, in combination with the quality of service that we get, um, we're not as bad as most people think. We have very good networks, some of the best networks in the world, and and a lot of the price comparisons that that, that don't appear to put us in the right place are, are, are flawed in many ways. Usually, when you look at the pricing, we, we tend to be in the middle of the pack when we look at OECD countries, and vis-a-vis -vis other countries, the quality of the service that we offer tends to be much better. So in your uh, Financial Post piece, you quote Innovation Minister Navdeep Baines of the Trudeau government, who gave an impassioned plea for net neutrality um, in Commons, I believe, recently. And that was echoed by two former CRTC chairs in the Globe and Mail who said, our generation, the millennials, have to fight for net neutrality. Um, is this, should we make anything of this? They also, in the Globe and Mail op-ed, warn of potential spillover effects from the U.S. recent deregulatory turn to Canada. So you have worked on the government side and you have a sense of the bureaucracy and you also have a sense of um, the Liberal Party of Canada. So do you have any predictions or thoughts on, on what's likely to happen? Honestly, I don't subscribe to the... Um the hysterical reactions that we've heard from advocacy groups, both in Canada and the United States. Um, from a political perspective, I understand Minister Baines from, for, for saying that Canada, you know, Canada believed in net neutrality. It, it's a relatively uh, a safe and uh, safe thing to say. And I think that it stems from a misunderstanding of what's going on in the United States. Uh, you know, net neutrality is not being dismantled. I think that the basic principles of net neutrality will remain in the United States. Uh, however, I do understand the appeal politically of, of disagreeing with anything that the Trump administration is currently doing. So I can't, I can't fault the minister from uh, uh, taking a position on this. Well, and, particularly and when it's in the form of platitudes like Canada stands for freedom of expression. <laughs> Not well, much it, lose there. Exactly. And, uh, and again, as, as I was saying, uh, 
I'm not expecting a, a far west type scenario once uh, Title II is done away with um, on December 14th, uh, as, as it will likely be because the Republicans have three votes versus two for the Democrats. So uh, I, I do expect that uh, Title II will be repealed, and I think it will be great news for the U.S., more innovation, more investments in broadband infrastructure, and uh, Canada will benefit uh, from, from increased activity on the U.S. side. And I even think that we should look at the United States as a model in terms of the, the light regulatory approach. Um, I'll give you one example where, um, one, one, one kind of vivid example of, of the application of these net neutrality principles in Canada versus the United States. So uh, there's this practice called zero rating. Essentially, zero rating is uh, uh, having an ISP not charging uh, a customer for data used for a specific application. So this practice, and I'll give you one example, we have in Canada, the CRTC decided that this practice was illegal under the Telecom Act back in April. And uh, the example that they were called upon to look at was Quebec uh, broadband provider Videotron uh, engage in a practice where they provided to their customers a zero-rated service called unlimited music, whereby uh, if you access certain music apps, and, and those music apps weren't owned by Videotron, they were just third-party music apps, uh, their customers wouldn't be charged for the data they used when they were on these apps. The CRTC said, this is illegal, goes against principles of net neutrality. More specifically, it goes against the provision in the Telecom Act that doesn't allow for undue preference given by a provider to either its own content or third-party content. As opposed to the United States, where under the Obama administration, something very similar had occurred. Uh, the, the FCC under Tom Wheeler's reign had launched an investigation into zero rating to determine whether it violated the Title II framework. One of the first things that Chairman Pai did when he assumed the leadership of the SEC was to cancel or to rather end the investigation. And uh, I think he put it nicely. He said, the FCC is not in the business of denying customers free stuff. Um, might appear very lowbrow reasoning here, but the reality is that zero rating is, first of all, in my mind, does not violate net neutrality. The data is not treated differently. However, the data that you use when you are using zero-rated applications is, is simply not being charged to you. Uh, but there are advantages to these types of practices. And, and notably, uh, for lower-income households, having zero-rated applications has a tremendous appeal. And uh, I feel like rather than being anti-competitive, the CRTC prevented actually a player, and Videotron is, is not one of the big three players in Canada. So it's very ironic over the last decade, the government of Canada and the CRTC has been gung-ho in trying to stimulate and bring about more competition in Canada's wireless and broadband market. Yet, when you have a smaller player trying to innovate and compete more robustly with the bigger players via practices like zero rating, they clamp down on them. Makes no sense. No, it makes no sense. And actually, Quebec is known to be one of the more competitive provinces, or at least trying to be, in terms of telecom generally. Well, it, it's particularly funny, especially um, the zero rating was being used by Videotron Quebec, but it, it was a very similar scenario in 2011-2012 uh, in the U.S. when T-Mobile started really competing with the bigger players. T-Mobile is, is the fourth player in the U.S. wireless market and broadband market, and you know it's smaller, and, and in order to gain market share, it started offering 
you know, similar kind of zero rating offerings to its customers and was able to really get a foothold in the market, thanks in part to these marketing and, and product strategies. Yet, uh, if, we, if we were still in the Obama era, the FCC might have concluded that these practices should be banned wholesale, which again, hurts the competitive process rather than helps it. Well, thank you, Paul. I will link to your Financial Post article um, on the website where this episode will be embedded. Um, and keep up the good work. Thank you, Joanna. Pleasure to be on the podcast. Thanks. Take care. Take care. <laughs>